Well, if you would now, take your Bibles with me. And let's open them up to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. And I'd ask you to turn with me to chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. This morning we come to really the end, uh, at least for this season, of our study of the life of Jacob. Uh, There is one more message to go in this series, Genesis 36, but Genesis 36 focuses particularly on Jacob's brother Esau and the legacy of Esau, the descendants of Esau. Uh, In January, we will return to our study of the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans 5, Romans 6, and then probably sometime uh, after Easter, beginning of the summer, uh, we will come back to Genesis to finish the book, with our focus then being on the life of Joseph. Now, in the life of Joseph, we will still see Jacob again as an old man. So we're not finished with Jacob. But at least for this time, uh, this will be the last time that we look at Jacob directly for, for a while. And so what I want to do with Genesis 35 is, is I kind of want to just work through it with you, paragraph by paragraph. It's hard to find one central overarching doctrine that, that brings all of the information in this chapter together. Uh, rather, I see this chapter as, as having many different lessons along the way. And, and so what I want to do is, is work through the chapter paragraph by, by paragraph, and, and I'll stop every few minutes and, and give a few words of explanation, and we'll stop and, and give words of application. Um, As we go through this, let's remember that this is the Word of God, and that this was given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that it is for our good. And so I hope that we'll approach this chapter with with humble hearts, with eager hearts, uh, disciples sitting at the feet of our Savior, uh, ready to be taught from His Word. So so let's jump into Genesis 35 in this uh, last time that we will see Jacob for a while. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 first. Genesis 35, verses 1 through 4. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. God says to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, or probably as they would have said it, Bethel. Do you remember this place called Bethel? Do you remember that this is the place where God had first changed Jacob's life? Uh, Jacob fleeing his brother Esau, going to his uncle Laban's, right? 
stays the night outside of this, this city of Bethel, and in a dream, God had spoken to Jacob. It was here that Jacob first declared his, his trust, his allegiance to the true God. It was at this place called Bethel that this deceitful young man, this self-centered man that we had seen up to that point, began to change into a different kind of man. And now it's, it's almost 30 years later since that event. 30 years later, Jacob is living in Shechem and God comes to him and says, I want you to go back to that spot. I want you to go back to that place where I first spoke to you and I want you to dwell there for a while. I want you to set up house there for a while. When Jacob gets there, he's going to erect an altar there and he's going to worship the true God in Bethel. Now, this isn't something new. He's already built an altar there where he's at in Shechem. And he's been worshiping God there in Shechem. But God says it's time to move. And if you remember what happened in Genesis 34 and how terrible those events were, you can imagine that Jacob's heart probably said, yeah, it's time to move. It's time to, to get away from this place and have a fresh start. And so Jacob instructs his household to do three things as they head to Bethel. First, they're to rid themselves of their foreign gods. If there are any idols that they have been keeping and praying to, praying through, they need to, to get rid of those foreign pagan idols. Second, Jacob calls them to purify themselves. This probably meant the washing of their clothes, it probably meant the bathing of their bodies. Probably meant abstaining from marital intimacy for a time. And then third, they were to change into different clothes. So these three things Jacob says to his household in preparation for their journey to Bethel. And all of these things seem to represent a radical consecration of Jacob's family to the Lord. This is Jacob saying to his household, um, this is something of a, of a holy journey. This, this is going to be the beginning of a new day for us. Let's have no more of the kind of behavior that we've had in Genesis 34. This family is going to belong to Yahweh, Jehovah. This family is going to belong to the true God. So let's clean ourselves up, let's get ourselves right, and let's go to that place where I first met the true God. Now, it's interesting that later Moses is going to instruct national Israel to do something very similar before they come to Mount Sinai. It is at Mount Sinai that, that this nation is going to meet God and, and see God revealed to them and have the, the law given to them, written by the very fingers of God. And it is here that they're going to be officially constituted as a nation. And, and as they prepare the journey to go to Mount Sinai, Moses says, purify yourselves. Right? So here, the man Israel is about to meet with God in a very special way in Bethel. God is going to pronounce very special promises upon his family, and he encourages his family to get ready. Now, the family brings to Jacob all of their idols, and we're told that they bring to Jacob their earrings, 
Um, these earrings were probably amulets uh, that had images of foreign gods on them. Uh, archaeologists have found lots of these uh, from the ancient Middle East. Lots of these little earring amulets that apparently the ancient peoples thought that they had powers attached to them, that there was some sort of magic or uh, a supernatural power that could be attributed to these, to these earrings. And so Jacob's household bring their idols, they bring these earrings, and they give them to Jacob, and he buries them at a particular tree near Shechem. Now, this isn't just some random tree that he chooses to bury these idols under. This is the tree at which God had appeared to his grandfather Abraham many years before that. So there is significance to this place where he buries these idols. In fact, Abraham had built an altar to the true God by this very tree. And so the burial of these idols in this place represents the death of worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. It represents a a new commitment by Jacob and his household. We are going to worship the true God and the true God alone. Now remember, this book of Genesis was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit written by Moses and given first to the people of Israel as they're traveling to the promised land. How important it was for national Israel to hear this story on their way to the promised land because they're going to be tempted to worship these pagan gods too. They're going to be tempted to take the gods of the paganites and the, of the pagans and the rituals of the Canaanites and to make them their own. And so the message of this passage for them was this. You are Israel. You are the children of Israel. This man, Jacob, he rejected the worship of these pagan gods. He was committed to the one true God alone. And so should you be. That's the message of this passage for Old Testament Israel. And that's the message of this passage for us. The church, the true Israel, right? We are the Israel of God, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. We, as Christians, are to be those who have thrown away our old gods and given our allegiance fully and completely to the true God. Now, is that true of you? Is that an accurate description of something that has happened in your life and perhaps happened in your life often as you examine yourself and see more gods seeking to take your allegiance and you must rid yourself of them time and again to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ? A God in your life is something which occupies your intellect, receives your affections, and dictates your actions. So if you say, Justin, what's a, what's a God look like in my life, right? It's not a, maybe a, a, an idol of bronze or wood or gold, but it, well, what is an idol? What is a God that is competing with God for my heart? And I would say, search your heart and say, what is it that occupies your intellect? You think about it a lot, right? Receives your affections. When you think about it, you get excited and you like talking about it. What is it that dictates your actions? You you allow your life to be shaped by this thing. Very common one this time of year, football. You spend your time thinking about football. 
your heart finds great delight in the subject of football and you begin allowing football to dictate your actions so that other activities, other interests, other things of importance begin to play second fiddle to the game. And that begins to become a God for you. Now that's just an example because it could be a host of other things. It could be your job. It could be your children. It could be music. It could be your own comfort. Dear friends, whatever it is that is competing with God for supremacy in your mind, in your heart, in your will, the message of this passage is we need to bury it. We need to die to the worship of other things. Jesus has given us every reason to do this. After all, is there any God in this world that can compete with Jesus Christ? Is there any other God in this world that is a true God? Is there any other God that can save you from hell? Is there any other God that can bring you the forgiveness of sins or or make you holy? Can any other God meet your deepest needs, satisfy your soul, or bring eternal, everlasting peace into your heart? If you know of another God that can do that besides Jesus Christ, I'd like to hear about it. Because there is no other. Can any other God work all things for your good? Or give you a never-ending heaven in which you will be surrounded by His glorious presence forever? Mount Hermon, there are a million things in this life that it is good for us to love, but there is only one in this life that it is good for us to worship. There is only one in this life that is worthy of the supremacy in our thoughts, the supremacy in our heart and affections and love, the supremacy in what dictates our actions. It's okay to enjoy football if you can do it for Christ's sake. Love your job if you can. I'd rather you love your job than not love your job. I certainly want you to love your children. I want you to to love all of these things as long as you can keep them in their proper place. Namely, I'm going to do the best I can at my job for Christ's sake. I'm going to love my children for Christ's sake. I'm going to find refreshment watching football so that I can get back out there refreshed and live my life for Christ's sake. But Christ must be supreme. Is he? Is he preeminent in your mind and heart? Is he what ultimately dictates your actions? How you respond to that weird comment that your relative says to you over Thanksgiving dinner? What dictates that? Is Jesus Christ your God, your one and only God before whom you bow and for whose glory you live? read verses 5 through 8. They're on their way to Bethel. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed Himself to him. 
when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And so he called its name Alan Bakuth. Now remember, after Jacob's sons had wickedly killed all the men of Shechem, wreaked havoc in the city of Shechem, taken women and children captive in the city of Shechem. These awful acts by Jacob's own household had had caused Jacob to be afraid that the Canaanites of the land, that the natives of the land were going to join together and rise up against him and utterly destroy his entire household. That was the fear that Jacob had. But instead... Under God's gracious providence, the opposite happened. We're told that even though Jacob's household was not a vast number, the cities around them did not pursue them. The cities around them did not seek to attack them. We're told that a terror from God fell upon these cities. It was only because of the fear that God put in their hearts of Jacob and his household and of Jacob's God that Jacob's family made this journey safely to Bethel. By the way, this is a reminder to us that God is providentially watching over His children and that He often works in ways that we don't even see to bring our souls safely to that last day. Now, notice that when Jacob arrives at Bethel, he gives the place a second name. It was originally called Luz. He gave it the name Bethel last time he was there, 30 years ago. Now he's given it a new name, El Bethel. El Bethel, literally, the God of the house of God. El means God. Beth means house, right? Bethlehem, house of bread. El Bethel, God of the house of God. Now, Jacob had originally called this place the house of God because it had seemed to him 30 years ago that this was the place where where heaven had contact with earth, where, where God seemed to be in a very special way. Remember, it was here that in a dream, he saw this staircase connecting heaven and earth with angels ascending the staircase and descending the staircase. And so Jacob had thought, what a holy place this is. This must be the place on earth more than anywhere else where God's presence dwells. This is Bethel, the house of God. Jacob has grown a lot since that very first encounter with God. And he's begun to realize that the important thing about Bethel is not the place itself, but the God whom he met there. That this God does not just reign over one particular city. And remember, that's the way most of the pagan world thought. There's a God for this city and a God for this city. And each God had its territory and each God had its region. It would have been natural for Jacob to have thought that way 30 years ago. But now Jacob has come to see that this is the true God who reigns over the universe. It was this God who was with him when he was at his uncle Laban's house. It was this God who prospered him there and protected him there. It was this God who delivered him out of Laban's hand and and from his brother Esau. This is the God whom he worshipped at Shechem. This is the God who has brought him safely back to Bethel. For Jacob, the emphasis is no longer on the place, house of God, but on the God of the place, the God of the house of God. 
And friends, it's important that we don't mix this up. We want our little corner here in Rocky Mount to be a special place. We want to take care of these these buildings that God has entrusted to us and and the property that we have. We want them to be used for good and, and godly purposes. We know that God has moved and is moving in the hearts of people to give generously for these things to be. It would be wrong for us to treat these buildings or this property with disrespect. But that said, we must never forget the reason that our little corner here in Rocky Mount exists. It's not simply that we may have buildings. It's that we might meet with God in a unique way in this place. This building is not the temple of God. We as Christians are the temple of God, united in one body. This building is not the church. It's not about place. It's about God who meets with His people, Christ the head, us the body. It's in our gatherings together that we receive the Word of God, that we truly meet with God. It is in our gatherings in this place that He teaches us, He encourages us, He convicts us, He he gives us greater glimpses of His own glory. It's here that we rejoice and it's here that we tremble. Here is the great privilege we have received, Mount Hermon. Not that we have nice facilities and nice property, though we should be thankful for those things. But the great privilege we have is that we get to meet with God Himself. That this is a place where we commune with Him corporately as a body. Matthew Henry points out, puts it this way, the comforts that we receive here do not come from the, the house of God. They come from the God of the house. Everything we do in this little corner is empty if we are not meeting with God here. Mount Hermon, are we meeting with God this morning? Are we communing with Him? Are we encountering Him? Is He he present with us in an active way by His Spirit? We should be constantly praying, oh God, work among us. If if you aren't here, if you aren't teaching us, if we're not relating to you, this is all a game. This is empty. How easy it is for us to become obsessed with the things that deal with the house of God rather than the things that deal with the God of the house. So let us learn this lesson. Now, real quickly, it appears that Jacob's mother, Rebecca, a woman named Deborah, died and was buried here in Bethel. It's interesting, we're not given any details about whether Deborah had come to live with Jacob in the household, whether this means that Jacob's mother had already died. Rather, the point seems to be that she was buried under this tree and that this tree was, for ancient Israel, a landmark. Something that they would know. Something that, that, that fathers could tell their children, oh, that's the tree where, where Deborah, the nurse of Rebekah, is buried. Jacob named the oak tree where she was buried the Oak of Weeping. And this reflects that this particular servant, this nurse, must have been truly loved and cherished by the family. It's a really strange thing. The Bible says practically nothing about the death of Jacob's mother. But it gives this little obituary for his mother's nurse. It says something about the role she must have played in that family. 
All right, let's pick up the speed a little bit. Verse 9, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God has said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now, probably the most important thing to note here is that God is now very, very clearly, precisely, directly taking the promises that he gave to Abraham in Genesis 17, and with no shadow of a doubt, he is saying these are going to come true through Jacob and his descendants. Jacob has heard these great promises before, and we as a church have spent a lot of time studying these promises, unpacking these promises. The first time Jacob heard these promises was 30 years ago. He hardly even knew this God. Now, he grew up in a house where the, the father and mother knew something of this God, but it's, it's clear, as we've seen, it was something of a dysfunctional family. None of it seems to have, have really sat home, gotten home with Jacob until that moment 30 years ago. But now, as Jacob is hearing these promises, he's hearing these promises as one who has walked with God for 30 years. One who has learned God's faithfulness. Now that God is speaking these things to Jacob, Jacob has a certainty about them. God is saying them. They will be true. And the parallels with this passage and the giving of the promises to Abraham in Genesis 17 are are really shocking. Uh, they're, They're very clear. Both passages begin with God appeared. And by the way, this is the last time that God will appear in Genesis From this point on, he will speak to his people through dreams in the book of Genesis. This is the last time that he makes an appearance. We can assume that this appearing, by the way, is is the way it was through most of Genesis. An angel of the Lord, probably the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appearing to him. Both in Genesis 17 with Abraham and here with Jacob, we're told that after God spoke, he, quote, went up from them. And both pieces... Uh, passages, God speaks of Himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. In both passages, God changes the men's names. Abram is changed to Abraham. Jacob is changed to Israel. There are similar phrases that are used, similar wording that is used, including the language of being fruitful, the language of having kings come from their own bodies. God speaks to Jacob almost exactly the way He did to Abraham to make clear that it is through Jacob and his soon-to-be twelve sons that these promises are going to come to pass. And of course, church, these promises have everything to do with us. Jesus is the ultimate son of Abraham. 
Jesus is the true Israelite in whom all of these promises are yes and amen. The church is that nation of nations, that kingdom of people from from every people group in the world. We are the ones who are going to inherit Canaan, which will include the entire universe. All that Abraham longed for, all that Jacob longed for, they have now received in Christ. And it is in Christ that these promises from Genesis 35 become our promises. Every time we get here, I want to unpack them all again, but I can't. We've probably done it ten times in our study of Genesis, so I can't do it again. But hopefully you remember how all of that is, is true. What was Jacob's response to hearing these promises? He worshipped God. We are told that he set up a pillar. Uh, Scholars disagree as to whether this was a second pillar from the one he set up 30 years ago or whether he uh, renovated the one he had set up 30 years ago. He, He pours a drink offering onto this pillar and he acknowledges that he has been greatly blessed by God and in a sense recommits his life. He, he renews his allegiance. He says again to God, you are my God, I will follow you. And this pillar was to be a reminder, not only to him, but to his children and future generations of what God had said to him. It was a public testimony of the promises he had received. Now, you and I are blessed in that we have a Bible. We have a place we can look anytime we want to remind ourselves of the promises that God has given to us. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we don't have to build a pillar of stones and and say to our sons, now we have to remind ourselves of this once a year, you know, we have to remind ourselves, what were those promises again? We have the Bible. We can consult them anytime. We can can learn from these things. And, And though God has never appeared to us in person the way God appeared to Jacob in person, God has nonetheless spoken to us just as surely through the Holy Spirit in the Bible with His promises as He spoke to Jacob. We are a very blessed people, and I hope, you, I hope you recognize that, and I hope your scriptures are precious to you. Verse 16, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. So here we read of the last of the 12 sons to be born. Here we read of the birth of Benjamin. And we read of the death of Rachel. Rachel calls this boy's name Benani or Benani, which means son of my trouble, son of my sorrow. But Jacob calls the boy's name Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, favored son. Rachel was the wife that Jacob had loved so deeply. For so long, and altogether, she gave him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Favoritism is still going to plague Jacob's life. 
Joseph and Benjamin are going to be the two sons of the twelve that most have his heart. You know how Genesis 37 begins, right? The giving of a special coat, a special robe to Joseph. Rachel was buried in a tomb near where she died in a city called Ephrathah. We know it as Bethlehem. And this city would become a part, listen to this, this is interesting, this city, Bethlehem, would become a part of the inheritance that God gave to the tribe of Benjamin. Since this was where he was born, since this was where his mother died, when, when God allocates the land of Canaan to the twelve tribes, Bethlehem becomes a part of the tribe of Benjamin. Now the only point I would want to make about this is to remind you that earlier, Rachel had declared to Jacob, give me children or I will die. And here we see sort of an irony to those words. Rachel spent a long time failing to be content with what God had given her. And in the end, God gave her what she wanted at the very cost of her life. The pillar Jacob set up at Bethel was to be a reminder of a wonderful time in his life, right? The pillar at Bethel. This was, look at what God said to me here. This is where I first met God. This is where I I reconsecrated myself and my family to God. The pillar at Bethel was to be a joyful reminder to him. The pillar Jacob sets up in Bethlehem is to be a reminder of something very sad. This is where my beloved wife died. And isn't it interesting that we go from the mountaintop of Bethel to the, the valley of the death of Rachel so quickly. And I think it should be a reminder to us as the Israel of God, dear church, that this mixture of happiness and sadness is our lot in this life. There is another day coming, but it's not a bed of roses today. But it was the promises that that Jacob had received at Bethel that helped him to remain strong and persevere through the difficulty of losing his wife in Bethlehem. And so also it is the promises that God has given us in the good times, the promises that we have in the word, the promises of what's coming that help us when our own losses and trials and tragedies come. Verse 22, we're just going to look at the first part. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And that's all that's said of that incident right here. (laughs) Reuben commits incest, taking the concubine wife of his father, mother of his half-brothers, Dan and Naphtali, and he becomes intimate with her. It is likely that this was not mainly about Reuben's lust. Reuben was doing two things here. First, now that Rachel was dead... He was making sure that Bilhah could not become the chief wife and supplant his own mother, Leah. Leah had been neglected by Jacob for a long time. Now with Rachel gone, Reuben was not going to allow this concubine wife to become the favored wife instead of his mother. And so there seems to be an an act on behalf of his mother here. And then second, it is very well known that in ancient times, the power transfer from the father to the eldest son often included the eldest son taking his father's concubines. This is what happens in David's life when when David's son Absalom seeks to take over the kingdom and to to take over the royalty. He he takes David's concubines and goes into them very publicly to say, the power is now mine. 
My dad, forget about him. He's gone now. It's, it's me. Similarly, Reuben seems to be exerting himself. As his father is getting older, as his father is aging, taking his father's concubine was a way of saying, now I'm going to be the son in charge here. I'm going to be the one who has the family property. I'm going to be the one that the rest of the family needs to look up to. All my brothers and their families and their servants will need to look to me and honor me. Now, do you think Reuben's plan worked? It backfired, and it backfired in a big way. Probably most clearly, we hear this in 1 Chronicles 5.1. Just listen to this. 1 Chronicles 5.1 says of Reuben, He was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled, he could not be counted as the eldest son. Esau lost his birthright when he sold it for a bowl of stew. Reuben lost his birthright when he rebelled against his father and tried to exert his own authority through this act of incest. And we as Christians, we say, what is Jesus teaching us here? Well, among other things, I think Jesus is teaching us not to proudly exert ourselves over others and try to demand the respect and the honor of others. If we are respectable, people will respect us. But God resists the proud and exalts the humble. Ambition is a good thing when it is ambition for the glory of Christ. But ambition for the exaltation of self is a wicked, wicked thing. It's the very nature of the devil. We would do well to throw this kind of attitude. Let me exalt myself at whatever means possible. We would be well to throw that attitude far away from us. It will backfire in the end. I wonder if there are any of us here who are trying to exalt ourselves in the eyes of others. Maybe you're even doing underhanded things to try and get honor from others. Or maybe you boast in yourself Maybe you're acting unscrupulously. If you humble yourself, if you trust Christ, if you do what is right, then you will be a truly honorable person and you will receive honor at the appropriate time. But you need to leave those things in the hands of the Lord. Don't follow the example of Reuben and seek to exalt yourself. Pick back up verse 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. Right? Now that Benjamin's been born, now the sons of Jacob are 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And so here they are. Twelve men who will become twelve tribes which will make up God's nation in the ancient world. The family is now complete. And for the rest of the Bible, it will use this number twelve and variations of the number twelve as a picture of fullness, completion. Right? So Jesus chooses how many disciples? He chooses twelve. 
And he says that in heaven they will sit on 12 thrones and that even in the new heavens and the new earth they will be ruling 12 tribes. Have you ever wondered about that strange passage in Revelation that says 144,000 are going to be saved, right? 12, 12 thousands. I think we have every reason from the scriptures to believe that that is not literally meaning 12, 12 thousands are who's going to be saved. But that the picture is the entire family of God is going to be saved and not one is going to be missed. The church is going to be complete. The church is the true Israel and God will fully save every one of his elect until the kingdom is fully built. Not one person whom God has chosen to give to his son will be missed. Not one will be overlooked. Let Satan do what he will. Let the world do what they will. They cannot stop the full citizenry of the kingdom of God from being brought in. That's the picture of this fullness, this number 12. We're almost done. Verses 27 through 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. You remember that. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We end with the death of Isaac. Jacob's father. Esau and Jacob are now reconciled and at peace with one another. They come together to bury their father. And we're told that Isaac, look at this, was gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. Now this phrase doesn't have to do with burial because it was used of Abraham when Abraham was being buried nowhere near his people. Right? Abraham was being buried far away from any of his fathers and ancestors, and yet we're told of Abraham that he was gathered to his people. Rather, the, free, the phrase speaks of something that happens between death and burial. The body is buried, but the soul, the spirit of the person is gathered elsewhere. The, the spirit of a person is gathered to that person's people. And even in Genesis, before God has fully revealed a, a, a doctrine of, of, of uh, in a full sense of heaven and hell and, and those realities, there's an understanding here that people have souls which get gathered somewhere to their people. Now, who are their people? Well, it's not their physical family. It's their spiritual family. Isaac went to heaven where he joined not only his physical ancestor Abraham, his dad, but his spiritual ancestors, those of faith who had gone before him. Mount Hermon, one day, unless Jesus Christ comes back first, you too are going to experience this. You are going to breathe your last. It could be today. It could be years and years and years from now. But you are going to breathe your last. Your body will be buried and your soul will be gathered to your people. The question is, who are your people? Are you counted among those who have known the true God? Are you counted among those who have rested in Christ, followed Christ, been saved by Christ? Are you a part of the true Israel? Are you a part of the true kingdom of Christ? Are you a Christian? 
is what I'm asking. Or will, be you, will you be gathered to another kind of people? Those who live at enmity with God. Those who refuse his sweet salvation. Those who exalt themselves, live for selves, and spend eternity in hell. Will your soul go to the place where those who have never repented and never stopped hating God go to receive his righteous wrath forever? Are those your people? Isaac was a sinner just like you and me. Jacob was a sinner just like you and me. Those men, and many like them, deserved the judgment of God. But God came to them with promises, called them to believe his promises, and they believed and they were saved and the kingdom of heaven became their people. God was so gracious that he did everything necessary. He just said, here's the promises, believe, trust me. They trusted and their people became the citizenry of the kingdom of God. They were saved. And in the same way, God comes to you. Even this moment, God is coming to you with promises. Like this one. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a promise. And the question is, will you trust it? Will you take God at his word and give yourself to Christ? You will rest on Christ, depend on Christ, then Christ's people will be your people. You will be gathered to where they are when you die. Will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Pray that you will. Let's pray. ask you now just to take a few moments and to think back over some of what you've heard. 